Our Old Testament lesson is found in 2 Kings chapter 5, reading verses 1 through 19. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill or to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him now come to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go. And wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company. And he came and stood before him and he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter, may the Lord pardon your servant when my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon. When I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to turn against our own wisdom and we come to place our trust in you. Teach us your will. 
lead us into your truth according to your promise. Illumine our minds. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 2013, David Brooks, the well-known author and columnist in the New York Times, was researching and writing for his book, The Road to Character. The book discusses the formation of character by exploring biographical examples of people from all kinds of different faith traditions. And two examples, though, in the book included prominent Christian examples, biographies of Augustine and Dorothy Day. And as he wrote, Brooks, in his early 50s at that point, encountered a personal crisis. His life, everything he had known, completely fell apart. This personal crisis then led to a spiritual crisis in which he began to explore Christianity. Brooks began to express publicly to his acquaintances that he was religiously curious, was the phrase he would use. This resulted in Brooks receiving no less than 300 books by mail. Never tell a Christian you're interested. (laughs) 100 of those books were copies of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Brooks began attending a local church there on Capitol Hill where he was living and eventually he converted to Christianity while reading a Puritan prayer by a lake in Colorado. It's a powerful conversion story, compelling, but it also doesn't stand alone. It's one of a long precedent. And this morning in 2 Kings 5, we read one of those original conversion stories of something unlikely that happens, a classic narrative of the conversion of a man, Naaman, that no one would ever expect to be a member of the church. He was an outsider. He was a commander in the armies of the king of Syria. They were adversaries to Israel, in fact, had just freshly defeated them. He had even taken Israelite slaves. And despite all of that, God pours out grace and God pours out mercy on this man, bringing him into his own family. This is a powerful conversion narrative. And what it does for us is it introduces us to the spiritual dynamics surrounding conversion. And so three very simple things that we'll focus on this morning as we read Naaman's conversion, his own biography. We'll see first what characterizes, or excuse me, what induces conversion. Secondly, we'll see what impedes our conversion, what barriers we put up. And finally, we'll see what characterizes our conversion, what marks it out. And so let's consider each of those. First, in verses 1 through 5, we see precisely what it is that induces our conversion. In verse 1, we are introduced to Naaman, a commander of the army of the king of Syria. He is a great man, we are told. His master esteems him. He is known as a man of valor. It is fair to say that Naaman has everything that the world has to offer. He has position, he has power, he has privilege, and he has leprosy. He had everything. He has the heights 
of human experience and accomplishment, and he has the depths of human misery. He was a man to be envied, and simultaneously he was a man to be pitied. Through his conquest, he had taken a young Israelite girl. We are told she is a little girl, in verse 2, from her home. And he put her in the service of his wife. This young girl, a slave, in verse 3, recommends to her mistress that Naaman seek out the help of the prophet who is in Samaria. She was referring to Elisha. One of the most remarkable things about this entire chapter is that this word travels from the mistress to Naaman, and Naaman then in verse 4 goes to the king and wants to solicit the help of this prophet. And so we have to ask the very practical question, what makes Naaman willing to listen to a slave's religious advice? This was a slave whose armies he had defeated. This was a God who would have been thought to be impotent because he could do nothing to defend his people. But yet Naaman says, no, I will listen to this advice. And why is that? And friends, there's only one answer that echoes down through the ages. That Naaman listens to this advice because he's desperate. It's his desperation that induces him, that causes him to seek after God's help. In the ancient world, leprosy was socially unacceptable. It was perceived to be an infectious disease. And the only means of coping with those infected was to isolate them and to exclude them. Naaman had contracted this disease that would cut him off. His life and all of his greatness they were over. And friends, it is this suffering, it is this adversity that opens Naaman's heart, that makes him religiously curious. And this is where our adversity can be a gift. Adversity can be the very thing that awakens us. It can be the very thing that opens our eyes and takes us to God. What many would interpret as simply another impediment. Here for Naaman, and here for many of you as well, you found to be the very gift that allowed you to draw near to God. John Calvin in his commentary on Psalm 143 speaks of adversity. And there he says that adversity, though it's despised by many, that it can be like a chariot in which we ascend to commune with God. And so rather than an impediment, the adversity and the suffering itself, Naaman's leprosy was like a chariot that took him to God. It is the adversity that awakens us to our need and induces our conversion. In verse 1, we see that the story is very carefully crafted that Naaman had been granted great favor before the king of Syria, and they'd been granted, he had been given many victories because by him, the Lord had given those victories. The statement is being made plain that it is God who controls all of these things. He controlled even the victories of foreign armies. 
And friends, it is the same God who controls the adversity and the suffering. And he has his good intents for us in them. Because this is often what induces us, makes known our need to us, allows us to draw near because we feel the desperation of our need for God. Second, in verses 5 through 13, we see exactly, though, what can also impede our conversion. Yes, God induces this conversion with desperation and need, but also there are impediments. And Naaman travels to Samaria, and he has an official letter from the king of Syria. And that letter demands a cure for his general's leprosy. Naaman comes with chariots and horses. He comes with 10 talents of silver. He came with 6,000 shekels of gold. And he came with a full wardrobe, 10 pairs of clothing, all gifts to procure what he could not do for himself. And in verse 8, Elisha hears of Naaman's arrival. He knows that he has come, and he sends for him. The king is in anguish because the king knew it was not within his power to give what Naaman had requested. And Naaman arrives at Elisha's house. Elisha then bucks all social decorum. He does not come out to see him. If you read along in verse 10, Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Through the messenger, Naaman receives this very simple instruction. Go and wash in the Jordan, and everything will be right. But it's critical for us to note here Naaman's response, because it's a curious one. We're told that Naaman is furious. Twice we're actually told about his anger. Follow with me in verses 11 and 12. But Naaman was angry and went away saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in rage. And friends, this is where we see what's behind all of the anger. We see that what Naaman was expecting, he was expecting personal and immediate attention from Elijah. Elisha, excuse me. He expected a dramatic and powerful act by Elisha to wave his hand over the place and to cure it. He expected for Elisha to be flattered that this great man had come with all of these gifts. He expected to be able to use his power to persuade and make Elisha do his will. He did not expect to be told by a messenger to go wash in the Jordan, a small and relatively unimpressive river compared to the great rivers of Damascus. Naaman is a great man, and what he expects is that great things will be done for him. And friends, this is where we discover what exactly impedes our conversion. 
we're offended by the simplicity of the command. We are offended by the humility it requires of us. Would this really bring the cure? Naaman was looking for something more sophisticated, something that operated according to his own preset wisdom, something that was perhaps more ritualistic, something that certainly wasn't so mundane and so common. We want something sophisticated. We want something that we can gain or purchase or influence. We want something that operates according to our own standards of wisdom. And so Naaman is furious. He's mad that he's gone to all this expense and all this travel and he's come and been told something that he views as worthless. Paul explains this for us in 1 Corinthians teaching us that the wisdom of God is indeed folly to the world. It's seen as folly. It's unimpressive. It's weak. It's pathetic. And this is the way Naaman judges Elisha's word. But we're also told that the cross of Jesus is the power of God for salvation. But friends, to access that, For Naaman to know those healing powers took that humility and that humility that was blended with faith to dip himself into the Jordan River seven times, believing the word that was attached to the promise and in going under the water seven times, he was healed. Naaman had to wash. It's interesting to note in verse 13 who it was that instructed him and called him out of his anger. It was the servants. It was those who knew about positions of humility. This is a great word that is spoken to you. And he finally comes to his senses. And friends, we have to as well. That we have to get past ourselves. We have to get past what we think is wise. We have to get past what we think is great. We have to get past what we can control. That to know the saving and the healing powers of God, all the promises of the gospel that are given to us in the death and the resurrection of Jesus, for that to be realized and to become our own, that we have to set aside all of that pride. We have to set aside all of our greatness. And we have to come and listen to that word and to heed it and to obey it and to follow it and primarily to believe it. And this is when the power of God is unleashed in our lives. But we impede it with our pride and with our arrogance. Many years ago now, as a young pastor in Memphis, Tennessee, inside of the same week, I was approached by two young men, both from fairly prominent families in town. Both had lit their lives on fire. One was involved in a public scandal, one in a private scandal that was not being contained. It was awful. They came and they were seeking advice about what to do. And it was interesting, both had grown up in the context of the church, both were fairly nominal on the edges and fringes, asking the same sets of questions. But as the answers came back, as they sought advice, one absolutely breaks and recognizes that he has held off God all of his life. He converts, 
he becomes a Christian. Despite knowing all the truths of Christianity, he recognizes that there was never the sense of desperation until this crisis in his life. And the other doubles down. Despite a public scandal, no, I'm really a good person. And what you're saying is too much. I don't need that. And friends, this is the difference. That pride can impede our conversion. It makes us think that we're wise unto ourselves and we resist the wisdom of the cross. Not trusting the sufficiency of Jesus. Not wanting to come to the place of confession and humility before him. But finally, in verses 14 through 19, we also discover here what characterizes true conversion. In verse 14, Naaman washes and is healed. And there's two things that we find here in the rest of the story that characterize or demonstrate that conversion. First, we are told about Naaman's flesh, what happened to it. That his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. It's in in telling us and recording that little fact that his skin became like that of a little child. We're being told something that Jesus will amplify in John chapter 3, that Naaman had been born again. That Naaman had become like a little child. There is one other place in the narrative as well where this word, it's an unusual word and a special word. It's the little girl, the faithful Israelite who had pointed Naaman to his cure that existed in Israel. The little girl serving in his home. And Naaman is now like her. He is a little child born again. And what is being communicated here is that this is what characterizes true conversion. This is what it looks like. We become like a child. And Jesus says this in Luke 18 and verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And friends, this is what had happened to humble Naaman. Willing finally to enter into the Jordan to dip seven times in faith. Being healed. Reconciled to God, made new like a child. And friends, it is that trusting sense and that sense of wonder and that sense of submission that characterizes a child and Naaman knows it all over again. And this is the life of conversion. We become these children. But second, also in verses 15 through 19, we see that Naaman also announces his loyalty. He acknowledges there that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. He had been a loyal servant of the gods of Syria. But what he does now is he prepares to be able to make sacrifices, to make burnt offerings in his own land, not to those gods, not to Baal or Rimon, but rather to the Lord. We find it very clearly stated in verse 17. Naaman refers to himself. No longer as a leper, but he uses several times a new phrase, a servant. And friends, he has announced his loyalty, that he is a servant of this great God that has brought all these benefits into his life. You could say he is a monotheist. There is no other God in all the earth. But please note that this is not the dry, arid monotheism that can just be learned in a theology book. 
Rather, what this is, is it is that living and true monotheism born of evangelical conversion. The fire of the gospel has warmed him. God has drawn near to him. And friends, it is these two things that characterize that true conversion. Becoming like a child, humble and docile and trusting, and becoming a servant, offering ourselves to him, offering thanks and praise to him exclusively. And friends, this is the way of salvation. It's the way of conversion. And it's the same way. It's the same way for Naaman, and it is for you. It's the same for Augustine, as it is for me. It's the same for David Brooks, as it is for every one of us. That there is no other way. That God induces us often through our adversities and sufferings. He prepares us in desperation that we look to him. And then he breaks down those impediments, the pride that rises within, that stiffens at the simplicity of the gospel. That one would give himself for us, that one would stand in our place and receive our judgment. We resist that. We resist the message of sin and rebellion. Is that really true, we ask? And God overcomes these impediments. And then what characterizes that ongoing life is the life of a little child and the life of a servant. This is the fruit of conversion. Let's ask God to bear these things up within us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful account of an unlikely man who you brought into your own fold. You made him a sheep of your own care. You reconciled him to yourself through the blood of your son, Jesus. And God, we are the same. We thank you for the way that you are even able to use adversity in our lives, that you are able to work all things together for good for us. And Lord, we ask that you help us overcome all the impediments, all the things that we throw up, the ways that we trust in our own wisdom, the ways that we find the gospel too simple. Forgive us. May we be simple and humble and obedient and believe the good news. And Lord, we ask that you would bear your fruits, that those characteristics of conversion would live in us, that we would be like children and that we would be loyal servants. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.